Let me read it to you. Starting at chapter 3, verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices, and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is in all and is all. Jump down to chapter 4, verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Right, well, good morning, everybody. As Johnny said, my name's Gareth. Um, and I'll be leading us through these five verses in Colossians. So let us start by imagining a young church, maybe four to five years old. It's sited in an historic city, in a river valley, in an ancient crossroads. But it's lost some of its former glory, the city. There are two nearby towns that have grown in size and importance to become perhaps larger and more dynamic. But the church is doing well, it's growing, and there, but there are cultural pressures from the world outside bearing down on it, which could damage this church. How will it resist these pressures from the outside? In fact, how would it influence the outsiders outside of the church rather than be influenced by them? Well, uh, in many ways, this could reflect Redeemer in Winchester. Of course, we've just read Colossians, so I'm talking about the church in Colossae. Now, the time of this church, this church was, was formed, probably planted in around about 55 AD. And it was founded by Epaphras, who'd been with Paul in Ephesus. Now, Paul had taken... Uh, Paphras had taken the gospel to Colossae and founded that new church plant there. It's sort of a sort of a rich South Asia minor plant thing. He then planted two other churches in the same area at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Now, five years later, Epaphras is bringing news to Paul of this church plant. Five years later, 
And he's, he's telling Paul about this, this faith that the church have and their love for all the saints. All seems well with this church plant then, does it not? Yes, but there does seem to be some worrying signs and tendencies that Paul has to address in the letter. The cultural and religious climate of Colossae seems to be infiltrating the church. It's in chapter 2. And it also seems to be blunting the believer's initial efforts to develop a Christian character. It's in chapter 3. Numbers might be up in the church, but spiritual growth may be slowing or even declining under the pressure of the world outside of the church. So Paul ends his letter here, or towards the end of his letter, he wants to give some advice about how to deal with outside influences, and indeed, more generally, how would we deal, how would they deal with outsiders, those outside of the church that he mentions in verse 5. Now, these are timeless truths for all churches, but they do seem to be of particular relevance to Redeemer as a new, growing church. As Johnny said, we were were going through his letter earlier in the year. We never got to these these verses, verses 2 to 5, but I think they're important. These are not some miscellaneous instructions, as the heading in your Bible might indicate. I think these are key verses, this is, this is Paul trying to explain how to apply the lessons he's been given us in the rest of the letter. How do we do what he's been telling us? So he does this firstly with advice on talking to God about outsiders, so that's on prayer. And then he talks about how to live with outsiders, our actions, in verses 5 and 6. So talking to God about outsiders. Paul suggests, the first thing he suggests in his advice is that they pray, the Colossians should pray. In many ways, verse 2 is a preliminary to verses 5 and 6. And he says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Or as the, the ESV has it, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Well, as you know, prayer was the hallmark, a hallmark of the early church in its early days, from the very first days. There's that classic early church uh, verse in Acts 2, verse 42, where it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And it's commonly said by, by preachers, that a prayerless church is open to attack from the enemy. And Paul would agree, which is why he exhorts the Colossians here to pray. He can see some storm clouds gathering on the horizon. So Paul says first that we should be watchful in prayer, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. But what were the Colossians to be watchful about exactly? Well, I think we can get some clues from from the letter. If we've read the letter, there are two main areas that Paul seems to be concerned about. And the first one of these is to watch our thinking. And the second one will be to watch our lives. So why should they be watchful of their thinking? What's the problem? The church hadn't succumbed to any obvious heresy. After all, in verse uh, 2 of chapter 1, Paul says that 
these are the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. But it seems in chapter 2 that they were in danger of being led into some, some wrong thinking by outsiders. Wrong thinking that could lead to serious error. So what's, what's Paul actually worried about? Well, Paul doesn't actually tell us, uh, but whatever this teaching was, it differed from the gospel that Paul and Epaphras had been preaching. It probably had some, a similar appeal, appeal to some of the, the teaching that we might hear today, where the gospel is recast to appear more appealing, more in tune to today's thinking, and often minimizing the person and work of Christ. Or this false teaching could also be something would be encouraging us to add something to our faith, add certain elements for a fuller Christian experience. But Paul's, Paul's response is clear. And in chapter 2, verse 9, 9 and 10, he says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you've been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. So Paul says... We already have everything we need in Christ. Any recasting of the gospel, any, any new teaching which might diminish the person of Jesus and his authority, well, that's going to deceive us. Today, um, we have more opportunity than ever to be exposed to wrong thinking. I'd hope it wouldn't come from the front of the church here, but it could come from what you read. It could come from what you listen to, from podcasts. So Paul suggests that in our prayers, we need to be watchful about our thinking. So Paul then goes on, because he says we should also, well, he doesn't say here, but he says it earlier in the book, that we should be watchful of our lives. Paul describes the Christians as not only faithful brothers, but holy and faithful brothers. So they're not wildly off track, you know, they're not, they're not, really out of kilter with the gospel, but there's still work to do. And it's in chapter 3 that the Colossians are asked, and we read this earlier, Johnny read this for us, they're asked to put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to their earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And he goes on to say, rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. And then a bit further down, we read that, that the Colossians had to put on, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And above all of these, put on love. So we need to be watchful of our conduct and motives so that when our earthly natures surface, we put it off. And we need to be watchful to see that where we need to grow Christian graces in our lives, well, we put those on. How else will we grow in, in our Christian character? Well, I wonder whether this is actually a bigger risk for us at Redeemer than wrong thinking of false doctrine. I wonder whether we are not more at risk of some sort of slow moral decay or stunted growth in our Christian characters are we more likely to be at that sort of risk than, than doctrinal heresy? What do you think? Have we tired of the battle to put to death what belongs to our earthly nature? Have we given up clothing ourselves with compassionate hearts, 
kindness and humility. Well, it's easy to stall in our growth of Christian values and character. So that's why I think Paul says we should be watchful. And I think we should be watchful over our conduct, the conduct of our lives. Or maybe it's just me. Uh, when I look at myself, it seems that it's, it's much easier to be solid in, in what we call orthodox teaching than it is to develop my Christian character. But maybe I'm not the only one. And when we look at chapter 3, Paul identifies the first place for us to look if we want to see whether we are growing in grace. Can you see where that is? Where's the first place we should look? Well, it's in the home. It's in the home, isn't it? It's, it's in the home that we can see whether we're growing our Christian character. Are we becoming more compassionate, kind, humble, and patient with our wives or husbands? Are we still sometimes frustrated, angry, unkind, wanting our own way, non-communicative, impatient? And are we becoming less loving of others, perhaps more attuned to our own needs? So I think here is a fruitful area for us to, to examine, to be watching, and to be praying about, asking God to show us where we are in need of change and then asking for his help to change. But the last thing Paul mentions in this first little verse is that we should be not just watchful, and thankf- watchful but thankful. So uh, as we persevere in prayer and as we're watchful in it, we also need to give thanks and be thankful. And this is, a, this is a common theme. You'll see it in lots of Paul's letters, and you'll see it in Colossians. Paul mentions thankfulness in his prayers for the Colossians in chapter 1, when he says, we always thank God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And then Paul says how the Colossians should be thankful to God. In chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, he says, So just as you have received Christ Jesus, Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith, as you were taught, and overflowing with, with what? With thankfulness. And again in chapter 3, several times in a couple of verses, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So thankfulness for Paul is a way of life. It's, a, it's something to cultivate, something we should cultivate. So are we downhearted at our failures or our perceived failures? Well, be thankful that Christ loves us and will not turn away from us even if we turn away from him? Are we frustrated that our prayers are not answered? Think instead of all the good things that God has already given us and will give us in this life and in the life to come. And as we thank God for all his good gifts, our outlook will be transformed as we realize how much we actually already have in Christ. Or do you find more attractive? A joyful, thankful person or the perennial complainer. I think it's true to say that if we're not thankful, we will soon turn in to a complainer. So continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. 
Now, Paul then moves on to ask for prayers for himself in verses 3 and 4. He says, At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. That's the ESV version again. But I want you to notice who Paul is asking to pray for him. Now, this is the Apostle Paul we're talking about. He's one of the key church leaders worldwide, church planter extraordinaire, called personally and specially by Christ. This Paul, he's asking this backwater church plant to pray for him. Well, Calvin comments on this, and he says that if the Apostle Paul was not above asking for prayer of the Colossians, then neither should we be above asking for the prayers of our Christian brothers and sisters. Just as I was thinking about this, I got Holly's message about prayer requests for next Wednesday. So um, look out for mine. It'll be in there. But I wonder whether sometimes we are reluctant to pray and to ask for prayer. And if so, is it because we want to give the impression that we have our Christian life sorted out? Maybe you want to give the impression that we've got no particular need because we are top-draw Christians. Or maybe we just don't think we need God's help. We can probably get along all right, thanks. We don't need prayers for our lives, do we? But both these reasons are due to pride. Either we, we don't want to admit that there's areas of our life where we need help, or we think we're just self-sufficient. There might be other reasons, but it is a particularly British trait to want to demonstrate resilience, stoicism in adversity, self-sufficiency. And there's a famous Victorian poem called Invictus. I don't know if you know it. It's by a guy called William Ernest Henley. And this, this, this poem expresses very well this, this idea. As it concludes, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. So this is somebody who's strolled through life and he's got to the end and he says, I am the master of my faith. I am the captain of my soul. Now, all this, although this, this thinking actually captivated Nelson Mandela when he was in prison, it's not the thinking of the Apostle Paul. Paul knows that he is not the master of his fate, nor the captain of his own soul. That would be the Lord Jesus. He knows he needs help, even help from prayer from the Colossians. So the lesson here for me then is to learn from Paul. If he needed prayer, well, we certainly do. And if he didn't hesitate to ask others for prayer, well, we certainly shouldn't either. So just, just to think a bit more about why he's asking for prayer here, well, prayer, Paul is not afraid or proud, too, too afraid or too, too proud to ask for prayer because he knows his need. That's why. He knows that without the help of God, there would be no opportunities for his message. The door to his message would be closed. He needs God to open that door for the message. And he knows that he needs help to proclaim that message clearly. Although this is Paul we're talking about, he, he, had, he clearly had a preaching gift. He had great learning, powerful intellect. Many people were converted under his ministry, but he's still asking for prayer. Paul knows that he's not the self-reliant, unbowed hero of Invictus. Or if Paul is unbowed, it's because of the grace of God working in him. It's not his own fortitude.
No, Paul is not self-reliant. He asks for prayer because he knows he needs it. So let's now look at what he actually asks prayer for. So, well, let's start with what he's not asking prayer for. I don't know if you spotted this. He's in prison. He's in chains. But he's not asking that the Colossians would pray for his release. You might think that this would be at the forefront of his mind as he's writing this letter. In fact, it probably is. He's mentioned it again later on in verse 18. Remember my chains, he says. But he doesn't ask for prayer for freedom. It's not the freedom that he asks for. Rather, he prays that God may open a door to us, a word for, open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. And then he goes on to say, and pray that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. His prayer request is not about circumstances directly, his chains, but about how he can best do God's work and discharge his calling to proclaim the gospel in his current circumstances. Do our prayers look like that? Mine often don't. Instead of asking for God to change our circumstances, why would we not ask the Lord to help us do his work in the circumstances and despite the circumstances in which we find ourselves? Not that there's anything wrong with asking for prayer for, for a health or a work situation. But let's pray too for God to help us in whatever circumstances we find ourselves to do his work. So come back to Paul asking for prayer. He's, he's asking for prayer so he can carry out his God-given responsibility to, to preach and to do that clearly. Well, we obviously um, can't be praying for Paul. We're about 2,000 years too late. But we could and should be praying for, for preachers of our day, and indeed preachers in this church, thinking mainly of Johnny and Kit, as they've been called to preach. They have that specific calling, as Paul did, to proclaim the mystery of Christ, and to do so clearly as they ought. And as gifted as Johnny and Kit may be, well, they too need God's help as they, as they preach. And we could be praying for them, that God would open a door to their message and that they proclaim it as they ought. So when talking to God about outsiders, here are, here are the recommendations of Paul. Quick summary, be watchful in prayer so that our thinking is not led astray by outsiders. Be watchful of our lives so that we can increase our Christian character and be seen to be doing that amongst outsiders. Be thankful for what Christ has done for us and what he's doing in us. And pray for our leaders who have a particular responsibility to proclaim the gospel. So Paul then can now move on to living with outsiders. He's he's set out the foundations, if you like. And now he can talk about what the Colossians need to do. Well, he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making outsiders, making the best use of the time. And then he says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So wisdom in dealing with outsiders. Well, Paul is anxious that that the reputation of the church is maintained, that it's not tarnished by unwise living. He's keen that we make the most of the opportunities that we have without outsiders. 
But what does that walking in wisdom look like? Well, it, it certainly means avoiding a scandal, even the suspicion of a scandal. And we all know of, of cases uh, in the church, scandals in the church, even the evangelical church. And this is a great sadness uh, and a stumbling block to the gospel. It's why churches like ours need to be scrupulous about safeguarding. We have to be scrupulous about our finances. And we need to hold our leaders to account as well. But avoiding scandal is not just a church thing. It's a personal thing. It's a personal responsibility. One of the things that really brings the gospel into disrepute is, is divorce amongst Christians. It's a scandal that tarnishes the good name of Christians. And, and we have a responsibility, those of us that are married, to keep our marriages strong, to not let our marriages drift, but to do all we can to make them work and reflect the relationship of Christ and the church. So walking in wisdom, it also means avoiding any hindrance to the gospel through unchristian acts or attitudes to outsiders. Positively, it means exhibiting these character traits, the Christian virtues of compassion, kindness, and humility, gentleness, and patience. It means reading and rereading Colossians chapter 3 and applying them. So walking in wisdom means uh, also to be careful not to be dragged down into the ways of unbelievers. Outsiders, those, those people that maybe do things that run counter to what Christ would expect of us. Let's not laugh at what everyone laughs at. Let's not be doing what everyone does. It's too easy to be indistinguishable from outsiders. So watching our lives in prayer would certainly help with living and walking in wisdom. Paul wants more, though. He wants us to seize the day. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, he says, making the best use of the time. In addition to acting wisely, Paul encourages us to, to use our time wisely to make the most of every opportunity. In some sense, he's asking us to seize the opportunities that we have. Now, I don't know if you know the phrase or the, the, the words carpe diem, very popular a little while ago. It's a Latin phrase that's been translated as seize the day or make use of the day. And people today understand this as meaning enjoy yourself while you can. Make the most of the time that you have. It's, it's a philosophy that a lot of people live by. Apparently, even Dame Judy Dench has this tattooed on her wrist. Well, had it tattooed on her wrist for her 81st birthday. I can't guarantee that. I did read that on the internet, but it's possible. I suppose the closer we get to our own mortality, the more we realize that every day counts. Paul says something very similar. He says, make the, most, make the best use of the time, not, but not for self-fulfillment or personal enjoyment. He's asking us to do good amongst the outsiders and perhaps even to witness to them. The picture is here of a, of, a, of a scarce resource. Time is a scarce resource. Then we need to buy it up, use it well. Being wise doesn't mean being inactive. It means using our time wisely, not wasting it. But also, as we heard the other week, being busy is not the answer. Being wise is making good use of the time for rest as well as, as, well as action. But Paul's question to us is this. 
Are we making the most of our time that we have with outsiders? To do good? To demonstrate the attractiveness of Christianity and of Christ? To engage in conversations? To try and speak of Christ? Well, this brings us to, to the last point, which is, which is Paul's piece of advice about speech. He says, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. That's the NIV. The ESV says, let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each one. So Paul asks us to perfect gracious conversation. Conversation that's pleasing, attractive, Conversation that doesn't puff ourselves up or belittle others as so much that passes for conversation does these days. Just tune into any old talk show, you'll see that. Or listen to everyday banter. Paul wants us to make our conversation gracious, but also seasoned with salt. So not plain, not boring, that little bit of salt in there to give it some taste. So he's thinking of conversations that lead to questioning, conversations that may be intrigue. Paul's aim is for us to get others to ask questions so that we may answer each one. So we need to think about how we can have a conversation that leaves little hooks for other people to pick up and ask questions of us. Well, I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a great expert in this at all, I'm afraid. I, Try to come up with a few examples. So, for example, Thursday after the prayer meeting, uh, you might go into work and somebody might say to you, how was your evening last evening? Another late night at the office? You might be able to say, no, actually, I was at the badminton club. And they might say, really? I didn't know you played. To which you can say, I don't. I prayed. <laughs> okay, so not brilliant. Try this one then. Um, I'll give you a few options, then you'll have to work out your own, Okay. So you're often asked how your weekend was, right? So you could say, well, actually, we had some students around for lunch on Sunday. Really? But you're old enough to be their father. How do you know them? That just leads me into explaining how I know them. It's a way of talking about church and the friendships we have. Or this one's for Charlie Matthews and me. Uh, Somebody could say to, to Charlie on the Monday, how was your Sunday, Charlie? How did he go? And he'd say, he'd say, well, actually, I got up really early on Sunday. I had to play squash at quarter past eight. Quarter past eight, Johnny, what are you doing at quarter past eight, playing squash? He said, well, I had to, had to get it finished, done and dusted before church at 10.30. It's, it's, it's trying to get people to ask questions, giving us the opportunity to, to respond. So, okay, so I'm not an expert in, in salty conversation, but you, you get the idea. Um, I'm sure you can be more creative than me, I hope. You can be more creative than me. Um, It's interesting, Paul's not asking us to lecture people. He's not asking us to apply some evangelistic technique. He's asking us to talk to people, get them to ask us questions, and then to be ready to answer those questions in a way that might lead to sharing our faith. And we ought to think about how we are to answer each one. This isn't a technique we apply to everybody. It's a conversation is something you do with some individual. And so the answers need to be individual. And we can be audacious as well in this this approach. Uh, This 
This doesn't happen to me very often, but it, it, this is a case where, where I was audacious uh, when a colleague once told me he was planning to get married. And the conversation went on, and I discovered that his fiancée was, was a Christian. He was not. So I asked whether that was a problem, to which he said, well, why would that be a problem? So I explained why it would be a problem. In fact, I said to him that it would be unwise for a Christian to marry a non-believer and audaciously, audaciously suggested that he shouldn't marry her. Well, it didn't go down too well, but I had a plan B, which was, well, okay, if you want to marry her, at least you need to find out what this Christian faith is all about for yourself, which, to his credit, he did. And he actually went and spent some time with a, a Christian friend of mine and, and made, it, made a confession of faith. So there are times when we can be audacious. There are times with the right person and in the right place that we should be audacious. But before we finish, one last thing. Um, it's, it's interesting to think about this. Think about what we ought to do. The ESV is good on this because it explains that Paul's job was to proclaim the gospel clearly as he ought, whereas our job is to know how we ought to answer each one. So we're not all expected to preach. We're not all called to be preachers of the gospel. And that's appropriate, isn't it? I mean, we can't be preaching at work every day. We can't be preaching at university to the same people every day. But what we can do is practice gracious conversation that's seasoned with salt and be ready to answer questions that come our way. Try it out. Let me know how you get on. So in uh, conclusion, how do we deal with outsiders? Well, first of all, we need to watch and pray. We need to watch our thinking, watch our lives, so that we're not influenced by the culture of outsiders, but that we can, we can rather influence them. And then we need to pray for the gospel message and pray for those who preach it, that a door may be opened. And then we should be living consistent Christian lives, walking in wisdom amongst the outsiders, doing good as the opportunity arises, and we take care of our speech, making our conversations gracious, seasoned with salt. And we prepare ourselves to give an answer to each one that asks about our Christian faith. And then we report back to our Christian brothers and we ask for more prayer. Let me uh, finish off with a, a prayer and then I'll hand over back to Johnny. Father, we thank you for Paul's advice at the end of Colossians. Advice that we can take to heart. And Lord, we pray that we would be faithful in prayer, that we'd be watchful over how we live, watchful over our thinking. We pray, Lord, for opportunities to, to live good lives amongst outsiders. Pray, Father, for opportunities to have good conversations and that we'd be ready to give an account of what we believe. Lord, we pray that you would open the door to your gospel, whether that's preached from the front or through our conversations. And Lord, we thank you that in all things we can rely on you and not on ourselves. Amen.